Welcome to the Israel Conversation by the Massa Leadership and Impact Center, the content engine behind Massa Israel Journey. We bring contemporary, challenging, and compelling Israel issues to light in ways that help us stay connected with what's really going on on the ground. I am your host, Michael Unterberg, here with co-host... Liel Zahaviasa. That's you. Uh, and we are That's here me. with our uh, scholarly expert, Kalev Bendor. How are you, Kalev? Good. How are you guys? Okay. Oh, well. Yeah, everyone had a nice Rosh Hashanah? Mm-hmm. It was awesome. Inspiring. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I, I thought you had a house full of little kids. I find that hard to believe. Yeah, but... it, was, it, was, it was about survival for us. Yeah. Uh, and we survived. <laughs> that was inspiring. It was inspiring All that right. we survived. That's a good thing. Uh, well, we invited you here, Kalev, to make us a list of things to watch for in the news for uh, this coming year, 5782. So uh, can you, we were talking a little bit before we started recording. We actually noted something that wasn't on the list, but let's start with, let's go through your list, the titles, and then we should get through at least the first three. I think we might be able to cover all five, but we'll see how it goes. Okay, so so I was trying to think what people who, who follow Israel should be looking out for in, in 5782. And most of them, to be honest, are, are kind of foreign policy related. But the first one that I wrote is, is a domestic issue, which is is the the continued survival um, of the Bennett Lapid government. That's kind of mm-hmm. one issue which we will de- uh, which we will discuss. A second is all of the uh, the challenge around Iran going nuclear, the JCPOA nuclear agreement, um, uh, the Biden administration negotiating with Iran, whether that will bear fruit or not. If it doesn't, is there a plan B? All of that. The third is a situation in the north where Lebanon is is close to collapse, if it hasn't collapsed already. Hezbollah's continued uh, involvement in in the country and its very worrying uh, precision-guided missile project. Mm -hmm. The fourth is the ongoing, what what we call in Israel, campaign between the wars, which is Israel trying to minimise Iranian involvement in Syria. and lest we forget, there is a small contingent of U.S. troops in the country, which we were having a discussion earlier. Does the withdrawal from Afghanistan mean that, that the U.S. Is, is more likely to stay if it's less likely to stay? Um, and the fifth issue is, is the Abraham Accords, uh, which, which is now one year old, the relationship between the UAE, Israel, Bahrain, Morocco to a certain extent, Um and, and how that will continue. And, and as we were just discussing before the point, we suddenly realised that the Palestinian issue was not on that list at all. Um, although if, if, if we look forward to 5782, there will undoubtedly be some sort of crisis in the Palestinian arena, whether that will be in Gaza again, in the West Bank, in East Jerusalem. Um, so that, that also should be there somewhere, although it's difficult to pinpoint exactly where we should be looking for the time being. Well, it's funny because if, if if the question is what are Israelis thinking about now, like right after Rosh Hashanah, about what to think about for the coming year, it's sort of a different thing than what's the bird's eye view of things that could happen this year that would get our attention. What the, should the, they be looking at? Uh, maybe, maybe I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't think I don't think Israelis are thinking about the Palestinians because things have been, you know, there are flare ups here and there. Um, we had uh, we had some riots in prisons over people arrested. We had a Shawshank redemption escape of prisoners in the north. So you you have, by the way, Palestinians from the West Bank held in an Israeli 
jail, which is in, in Israeli territory. So that you have these complicated Palestinian stories. But overall, it's pretty much status quo and nobody, I don't think on either side, is looking for anything big to change. Although, you know, Mahmoud Abbas is not a young fellow. He could die. The Supreme Court could render a Sheikh Jarrah decision that could cause tumult. It's not implausible for this to be something that will be a big news story this coming year, but it doesn't make our list because the status quo just seems so entrenched. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah. I think two or three weeks before, before Gaza uh, escalated, I'm not sure people necessarily would have been able to put their finger and said, you know, this, this is about to happen, but we suddenly had this, this uh, convergence of issues, Yom Yerushalayim, Ramadan, right. Sheikh Jarrah, uh, the cancelled elections, right. Hamas trying to, to kind of uh, um, increase its brand, let's say, in Jerusalem, and, and suddenly things escalated. So, so yeah, there, there's story. always, structurally, there, there's always that possibility. Um, but I don't think kind of, you know, Rosh Hashanah 5782, looking ahead to the coming year, I don't think we're going to see any, any major breakthroughs uh, right. in the Palestinian arena. Look, I could argue that there wasn't any major consequence to all of that other than the growing sense of Israel insecurity abroad, which goes back to your point that the things we, we are paying attention to are Israel's diplomatic and public relations abroad, which that did have, I think, that's the, le- that's the lasting consequence of that last round with Gaza, I would argue. All right, so let's take the first one on your list, the survival of the current government. Now, wh- why, why would we worry about the survival? I mean, it's the government. Right, well, some people, might, some people might not be worried at all. Some people, during, some people in shul may actually have been actively praying for the fall of the government. Um, listen, the, as, as how I would think that happen this year? So as I think many listeners might know, that the government is a real mishmash of different uh, parties, um, both those on the right and those in the centre and those on the left. You've got, you've, got, um, uh, you've got Bennett's party, you've got Gidon Saar's New Hope uh, on the right, you've got Israel Beitenu, uh, which is also kind of more right-centrist. You've got two centre parties, Yair Lapid, Yair Shatid and Benny Gantz's party, and then you've got Labour and Merits on the left. And uh, we should not forget, you've got um, a party by Mansour Abbas, which is which is a, an Islamist party, mm-hmm. and all of these parties were were conjoined together. Uh, I would argue primarily to um, get rid of the former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and to what they would say return normalcy or sanity to the Israeli discourse and to focus on the non-ideological issues. So, Corona. Um, the education system, the health system, uh, perhaps returning uh, the political discourse to something that they would argue is more healthy. Um, but the weakness of it is that they are so ideologically different. So there's there's a certain amount of glue that's holding holding them together, which is kind of anti-Netanyahu glue. Mm-hmm. Um, but events like a flare-up in Gaza or in Lebanon, all, all sorts of things could tear... The government apart. So, so that is, and it's, it's only got sixty-one, or even less. Maybe the 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 vote for government was sixty versus fifty-nine. So it's a very, on in some ways, it's actually very stable because no one wants elections. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, it's very unstable because they don't really have the numbers. And one or two people within this very heterogeneous coalition could stop them passing votes. 
So, so that, that, that's the background to it. So if two or three of them resigned from the government, that would mean new elections? So there's only two ways in Israel to force new elections. I mean, we, ne- we never reached the kind of four-year period, but mm-hmm. uh, there's, two, there's two ways to, to force early elections. One scenario, which is a very, very unlikely scenario, is that the opposition brings a vote of no confidence to the government. Mm-hmm. Um, and it explicitly says, this is who our new prime minister is going to be. This is a new defense minister. This is all, all, the different, all the different positions. And the Knesset votes on that. And 61 people vote for that alternative government. That has never happened before. I would argue it's highly unlikely to happen. So that's one option. A well-organized presentation of an alternative government. We vote to replace you. And that vote means there's a new government. We vote to replace you with, just for argument's sake, Benjamin Netanyahu as prime minister and Benny Benny Gantz as defense and all all sorts. And you need 61 people to vote for that. The more likely scenario is that the government simply fails to pass the budget on time. Um, And the budget is coming up to be voted on in November. It'll be the first time the budget's been passed in, in, I think, three or four years. And the big question for the government is, can it pass the budget? And if it does pass the budget, it in some ways has then guaranteed itself protection from being toppled. So for those kind of looking ahead to the new year, domestically, the big, big issue for the government will be, can it manage, does it have the votes, the numbers to pass the budget? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is yes, then there may be crises there may be crises over Gaza. There may be crises over all sorts of things. There may even be that the government can't pass legislation in the Knesset, but if it's passed the budget, it can't be toppled. So that will be a really, really key and important issue that we will know the resolution of within the next two months. So the budget bill has passed its first reading. So now we really have to watch to see if it passes. That makes them bulletproof from the opposition. Uh, more or less, yes. More or less. But from from their side, what is necessarily keeping them together? Other than once the once the anti BB or keep BB out of Knesset sort of calms down or sort of becomes old old news, what maintains their their you know uh, certainty that they're going to continue working together in the way that yeah. they have been? So so so, Liel, I, th- I think that's that's the key question, and and just just to reframe it, yeah. if. Benjamin Netanyahu was no longer leader of the opposition, what would that do to the government? Um, because there, there is an alternative block of over 60 seats of right-wing parties, uh, Bennett plus SARS, New Hope, plus Likud, plus Smotrich's, uh, so I always call it so-called religious Zionist party, but Smotrich's religious Zionist party, as in once that glue is no longer there, mm-hmm. um, What's keeping the government together? So I'd say two things. It doesn't look like that glue is disappearing anytime soon. I think Netanyahu still feels that he's got a role to play, that he's not, you know, he's, he's not going anywhere anytime soon. Um, it may well be that there are knives that are getting readied for him within Likud. Um, and there's people who blame him for the fact that Likud is in opposition despite having 30 seats. But it doesn't look like Netanyahu is going anywhere for the time being. The other thing I'd say, um, I think it's a really interesting discussion over whether Bennett supporters are happy with Bennett being prime minister in the current um, mm-hmm. 
the current government? And, and I, I don't really know the answer to that because most of the people who criticise Bennett, I don't think voted for Bennett in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, but the question would be for Bennett and Saar and many of these people who are currently in government, if there were new elections, would they strengthen or would they weaken? Might, they might even be wiped out. There's, there's a really interesting question over, over to what extent Bennett has maintained his base. Um, and in some ways, I think that the, the real person who would gain, maybe even the only person who would gain from a new election is, is potentially Yair Lapid's Yeshatid party. Um, merits are in government. They're very happy there. They haven't been there for 20 years. Labour's in government. It's very happy there. So even if you took the glue away... The real question then becomes who within the government actively wants elections? Mansour Abbas, very happy in government, hasn't yet uh, achieved many or all of the things that he'd want to achieve. So even if you took the glue away, I'm not convinced there's that many. Lieberman is the king of taking away glue. What about him in your analysis? Well, Lieberman's in the finance ministry. I, I think he, I think he's pretty he's happy. happy there. Yeah, so, it seems um, as though he's happy. Yeah. So I think all of the, uh, again, we could be meeting in six months' time and we could be discussing right. the, the fifth Israeli election in, in however long. But but I'd say analytically, most or if not all of the parties currently in government are interested in staying in government and not going to elections. And I would argue that many of them, if there were elections, would likely lose seats, including the current prime minister. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think even if you took the, the, the glue, the Netanyahu glue very much is keeping them together. But I say over and above that, even without the glue, there is an interest in keeping the government together for the time being. Mm-hmm. When will when will um, Bennett have to switch with Lapid, Prime Minister and Foreign Minister? I'm pretty sure there's at least another eighteen months mm-hmm. to go. So that's not something to look forward to this year. Bennett should not be something assume- to look forward to. Uh, again, you could argue that that as that becomes closer. If there's no Netanyahu and there's an alternative right wing option, then maybe Bennett may have kind of pressure to to jump ship. But there's deep trust between Lumpid and Bennett. Um, And and, and I'm personally just a bit unclear of what Bennett, which is a crazy thing to say, but what Bennett's political future is after Mm -hmm. these two and a bit years. It Uh, is super interesting to wonder, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So... um, but certainly in the next year, Bennett, according to according to the agreement, should be saying as prime minister. And I'd say the big, the big, big, we say the big key is does the does the budget pass? And we could we could add one, which is what's with Netanyahu? Does he continue as leader of the opposition, or does he go off, write his book, um, earn some money to kind of fight his his legal defence, etc.? If I had to bet, I'd probably say that as, as long as he can can stick in the Knesset, he will. Uh, but you never know. Well, thanks so much, Khalif. You've told us the main thing to look for to understand Israeli politics is the fascinating world of budget creation. Oh, <laughs> it's riveting. The, the, and, the, and the making of the sausage. Yeah, oh, the making of the sausage. And it's passed its first reading, and now it's going to second reading. Woo-hoo! All right, but yeah, but okay. So, I, I mean, I'm, I don't have the head, actually. In all honesty, I'm, I mean, I'm joking around. But in all honesty, it's hard for me to follow the ins and outs of it. But I can follow it from the headlines to get a sense of how it's going. And you see in the you see the anxiety in the days before the next stage, I'm sure, just like with the first reading. There's this reporters, and part of it is they're, they're creating a narrative to make it interesting for people like me who don't care about budgets. 
But 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 really, but you're saying this is this is a real story too that we might not pay attention to the budget passing because it just seems boring, but it actually has a real drama lying under it, which is if Bennett can get that through, he's he's got good odds at a stable government. Yeah, it it it, it, it adds armor to the government. It makes it far 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 harder to be toppled. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. All right, uh, number two, and forgive me for number not remembering two, them in order. Yeah, these are not in, not in any particular order. Number right? two, in no particular order, is right. what many would argue is the existential threat to the future of the state of Israel. Maybe some people would argue that Bennett Lapid government is an existential threat. I don't know. So, no particular order. Uh, we're not we're not judging any of this. Um, no. But number two is is uh, the threat of a, of a nuclear Iran and American negotiations with uh, the Islamic Republic over a return to the JCPOA, the nuclear agreement that was signed in 2015 and uh, Trump pulled out of 2019. And kind of Israeli concerns that Iran is is kind of moving closer and closer to its ability to gain uh, a nuclear capacity. Can I ask a question, though? How concerned are Israelis That's literally your job here, Leo. <laughs> How concerned? I know that we know Netanyahu talked about it throughout his entire entire time as prime minister, and that was his number one issue always. Um, how concerned are Israelis actually on a day to day basis about this issue? Do you well, think? Yeah, well, yeah. The question is, how concerned are Israelis about anything on a day to day basis? <laughs> it's a great question. You know, we, we, you know we're three Israelis on a podcast. What concerns us? Probably for me, Corona, schools staying open. Uh, the mm-hmm. price of food. You know, these are these, these are the things right. that I'd say. Cons- but then the question is, what should concern Israelis? And, and I would also, I, I, I would add a caveat. When we go to the polls, what, who do we pull the? Who do we vote for? And 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 mm-hmm. there, when it comes to who we vote for, it is a major issue. At least that's what Israelis say. That that is the issue. And, and it sort of makes sense. In other words, day to day, I'm worried about the price of vegetables, and I'm worried about schools being open. But when I go to pick my leadership, if there's if Iran has a nuclear bomb or a set of them, that's game over. So, so I would argue that that is not one of the things that Israelis are going to the. Uh, that's one of the things that's on the mind of Israelis who are going to the polls. At least I think so. I don't. I don't think that's something that's of actual on a day like day to day basis concern that we have. Like I know elections come so often that it feels like they're day to day, but I guess when I but, but it's it's actually not you know four times in two years is four times in two years. Israelis seem to think that that's a major issue when they mm-hmm. vote, whether they're being. I mean, I, I, I'd I'd, I'd, I'd re know. I'd reframe you know in in polling whenever people get polled they always always the social issues and the right. and the religion and state and all of these things appear. Right. When when Israelis are asked about what worries what what, right. what will determine your vote, but then the the joke is, although it's, I think it's, it's deadly serious, is when you're then in the ballot box, you vote on security issues. So maybe you don't vote sure. on the Iranian nuclear capacity, but you vote on who will keep me physically right. safe. Yeah, I think that's, that's an important distinction. Yeah, yeah, it's an important distinction, right? For sure. But I think um, I think analytic again. I, I don't know what, what worries regular Israelis, but I think looking ahead strategically in the Middle East for five, seven, eight, two, one of the big, big issues is going to be w- w- what happens in this Israeli-American-Iranian triangle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Biden administration came in 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 January and it was very keen on re-entering the JCPOA. 
Um, and there were a lot of there were a lot of criticisms of of the nuclear deal. Uh, mm-hmm. One of them was that there are these things called sunset clauses, which means that after ten years or fifteen years or, or whatever it is, certain of the restrictions basically disappear. And there were there were challenge there were there were criticisms that it didn't f- fully focus enough on um, Iranian uh, R and D research and development and its, its missile capability. And what the Biden administration said is the most important thing is to get back into the JCPOA, and then afterwards we can negotiate a a, 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 a uh, longer and stronger agreement. Was that was I think the phrase? Um, and what ended up happening was. The Iranians weren't that, despite having this kind of maximum pressure sanctions against them from the Trump administration, they weren't really in a hurry to go back to negotiations. And then in June, uh, I was going to say a hardliner, but I, I don't really like this distinction between moderates and hardliners in Iran, because I don't know how moderate the moderates are, um, but a, a very... Um, strongly connected fundamentalist to the supreme leader was elected, I don't even know if elected is the right word, um, but became became president. And well, Iran elected from seem, among the choices the supreme leader gave. Them yes, elected so, from a yeah. very limited number where I think the number two or three most votes were basically for, for no one, as in people came to the voting booth and actively voted for no one. And that, that kind of was number two or number three in the most popular options. Um, well, it's always a good reminder. Iran's always a helpful reminder that elections don't make a democracy. Liberty makes democracy. In a country that their people have liberty, they get to choose their leader. So what international observers say the elections are conducted well, but you don't have a free choice of what candidates to vote for. And then whoever vote for is just going to obey the supreme ruler. It's a theocracy. So... It's just an interesting civics reminder provided for us by the good people in Iran. Yeah, or the or the good uh, clerics. Yeah, the fine mullahs and uh, ayatollah. So, so Iran doesn't seem to be in a hurry to return to the agreement, and and I think now we're beginning to hear voices within the Biden administration saying, "Okay, so maybe we won't return. Maybe it won't be possible." to return to the JCPOA. Maybe even Iran has made so much progress in terms of its knowledge towards obtaining a nuclear capacity. The whole idea of the JCPOA was to keep Iran potentially a year a year from a bomb. But if they've made so much progress technologically, then returning to the JCPOA as was won't even, won't even tick those boxes. So I think we're beginning to hear now within the Biden administration some sort of Maybe we won't return to the agreement. Maybe we need some sort of plan B. Um, they're definitely signaling pessimism of success. They're, they're preparing yeah, I mean, I think, I th- people to I think understand they thought that it's before not June. Work. I think they thought before June there'd be some sort of agreement, even a smaller agreement. And now we're in September. And I and can't remember how many rounds in Vienna there were of negotiations, but they haven't been for, for, for a couple of months now. Um and and Israel has has an is an in, in 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 an interesting position because it doesn't want or the Bennett government doesn't want to go head to head with Biden against the JCPOA as its predecessor did, um, but it is worried that a return to the JCPOA won't kind of keep Iran restricted. Um, it's unclear exactly what Bennett and Biden spoke about in in the White House. They probably spoke about kind of a commitment. That Biden gives that Iran, Iran won't go nuclear, which 
to be honest, when you look at how old Biden is and maybe he won't stand for a second term, it's not really worth that much. Um, but potentially, they'll, um, potentially, I think they'll, they'll, they'll try and engage in, in covert activities, maybe in cooperation, like, like was done in the past, maybe just the Israelis. Maybe even Bennett spoke to him about if Israel needs to or, or feels that it needs to do some sort of kind of military operation against Iran, um, will the U.S. stand with it? Uh, will the U.S. provide um, kind of uh, um, military equipment to help it? The, these might have been some of the discussions that took place. We don't, we don't really know. Um, but I think looking forward, um, Iran is, is pushing ahead with enriching uranium and, and making more and more developed uh, centrifuges and... It's, it's really unclear what's going to happen. It, again, if I had to bet, which is always a terrible idea, I'm not convinced there's going to be some sort of agreement between, between Iran and the US. And, and then the big question is, what happens? And it doesn't seem to be any major Biden administration appetite to be super active against Iran, which kind of leaves the, the arena open for Israel to do it. Um, so there's, there's, there's a lot of uncertainty here. Um, and it really remains to be seen how, how things are going. But it's, it's you know, looking, looking ahead to the next 12 months. This is a big, big issue. I would actually argue, at least in my framing of it, I don't think it's all that uncertain. In other words, if I don't look at the American-Israeli angle, I look at the Iranian angle. What would happen to make it not worth it to develop nuclear bombs? nuclear military capability for the Ayatollah. What would change that? And I don't think there's almost anything, really, that the Americans is, could offer or the international yeah, Mike, community I think, could I offer. Think that, I think, that's, I think that's, that's a really key point. And my perspective is, if a country wants to go nuclear, really, really wants to go nuclear, and is willing to make sacrifices in order to achieve that, and let's, let's not forget... If you've got a nuclear umbrella, you won't get invaded. Right. If Gaddafi would exactly. not have given up, if Gaddafi would not exactly. have given up his nukes, he would likely, or the Gaddafi family would still be in charge. And in Libya. If and in Libya, and if North Korea did not have nukes, right. it would likely be in a much more unstable situation. So if you are, if you are sitting in Tehran, um, and also if you look around and you see, you know, the Western nations have nukes and the Hindus have nukes and the Sunnis uh, in the form of, of Pakistan have nukes and certainly Israel, according to foreign reports, have nukes. And you think to yourself, we are, an, we are an ancient civilization. We are surrounded, or we certainly were surrounded when, when the US was still in Afghanistan, but we're surrounded by the US who's looking to topple the regime. Um, we're actually one of the few countries to, to have suffered from a chemical weapons attack by Saddam Hussein in the Iraq-Iran war. Um, we're looking to protect our regime's survival. And the best way of doing that is to go nuclear. So from an Iranian perspective, it's very logical. Clearly, from an Israeli perspective, it's very worrying. Um, and so then the question is, well, how, from a non-Iranian perspective, how can you prevent that? And the answer is, it's very hard. The one time Iran arguably stopped working on it was just after the American invasion of Iraq, 
when they felt that they might be next, as in when there was a real imminent um, feeling that an invasion might happen. That's when they stopped. And apart from that, listen, if you're willing to ride out the sanctions, um, then then you, you can do it unless there is a very active, covert number of operations that lead to explosions in Natanz and explosions in all sorts and, and the killing of scientists. And that, in theory, can can delay it. And it can delay and delay and delay. And it's, so far, it's been successfully delayed for almost, almost 15 years. But if there's a country who absolutely is committed to going nuclear and is willing to, to bear the costs or is willing for its population to bear the costs, it's extremely difficult, if not impossible, to stop, especially if there's not a, a believable military threat on the table, which, let's face it, there isn't now. There wasn't during the Trump administration and there wasn't during the Obama administration either. So, um, yeah, that, 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 it's a huge issue. Yeah, I, I would also argue you have to also put yourself into the fundamentalist Shia mentality of creating an international regime. Like, it's just... And then the next question is, would they be willing to use them on Israel? Which I think... I think it'd be very hard to imagine, you know, because would they be willing to have their citizens pay the price of a nuclear exchange? Or would they would they be willing to engage in a mutually assured, mutually assured destruction scenario destroying Israel? That's the other. So I so that we, I think that we can we can we can put aside five, seven, eight, two. May hopefully it won't be, but maybe there'll be a discussion yeah. for five, seven, eight, three or five, seven, eight, four. Yeah. I mean, I think I think the Iranian strategy is to become what we call a kind of nuclear threshold state, which means right. you don't have weapons, but you can get weapons quite quickly. Listen, you need, obviously not a, a nuclear scientist expert, but you need a few things. You, you need the weapon, you need a delivery system, so you need the missile. You also need to make sure that when you press the button, the missile actually goes mm-hmm. and it lands, it doesn't get shot out of the air. You need more than one. Having mm-hmm. one doesn't really help you. You need a lot. Um, so we're, we're still, we're, we're not there yet, but Iran as a nuclear threshold state also means that, in theory, if there's a flare-up in the north between Israel and Hezbollah and you've got you've got a, a genuine threat from Iran, that might affect Israel's room to maneuver. It might affect Israel's room to maneuver in, in Gaza. So in some ways, it's not even about using a potential bomb. It's right. about having one. Uh, or almost having one, that that changes the the, the dynamics. And not just that, a nuclear Iran very quickly, almost certainly would lead to a a nuclear Saudi, and the Egyptians would want one, and the UAE, and then suddenly you move to a very, very dangerous scenario in the Middle East. So I don't think we're we're there. Um, I'm not even sure we're almost there, but, but certainly looking... Long, long term, that that's a huge. It's not not even the danger of of a, of, of a Iran, Iran using a nuclear device, but it's what it having one or almost having one then does to the dynamics of everything else. Very Think important. about how it would limit our options in dealing with Hezbollah. You know, Israel would be under this constant. Number three on the list. So number three is uh, the situation in Lebanon. Uh, Lebanon is is very as a country. Oh, I segued without realizing it. Yeah. Right. Lebanon is is very near collapse. 
uh, its economy is is in tatters. There's, there's all these photos. Just as an example, there's just photos you know on the web of there's no, there's no gas. I actually think there's there's it has less electricity than Gaza. You know to kind of to kind of imagine. Um, and so it's, it's in a really uh, terrible situation, and we don't we don't really know what what's going to happen there. Will things get worse? Will I don't know? Thousands of refugees suddenly stream to, to the fence with Israel. Will um, Hezbollah strengthen even further? Will Iran get involved and again take over even further the country? Um, will there be instability that will lead to what we call a trickle of rockets? Um, is there anyone in the international community who cares enough to actively help, or, or is there even a possibility that, to actively help when there's so much corruption uh, or perceived corru- corruption amongst the political elite? Um, it's really difficult to know how that will develop, but it's, it's really not good news, certainly for the Lebanese people and also um, regionally. And it's interesting, you know, Liel was saying, what do Israelis care about the most? And then we were saying, what should Israelis care about the most? I'd argue that more worrying or more dangerous currently than an Iranian nuclear device is Hezbollah's what we call precision-guided missile project. Uh, Hezbollah has approximately 100 and, uh, 120,000, 130,000, who's counting? 150,000 um Rockets. Most of these rockets are what are known as kind of dumb rockets, as in you fire them and you don't know exactly where they're going to land. And there is a project underway to basically turn these dumb rockets into smart rockets, precision-guided missile um, rockets. And it's not that difficult to do. You need to add certain GPS. You need you need to, you need to re- replace the, uh, the 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 front of the the, the top top of the rocket. Um, with a couple of things. Iran is trying to do that. For a long time, it was trying to smuggle the weapons in, in convoys. Israel was, was preventing that by, by taking the convoys out, by hitting them. Um, and now the idea is to try and build them on site in Lebanon. Um, and this is a huge, huge issue. The estimates are that Hezbollah have from, from a few dozen up to 100. And these are the sort of weapons that you type in a GPS. So whether that's the, I don't know, the defense ministry in, in downtown Tel Aviv or uh, Dimona or uh, Air Force bases, um, maybe even the Knesset. And these missiles land within five, if they're not, if they're, if they're not taken out in the air, they land within five meters of their destination. Um, and this is the sort of thing that could really cripple Israel. Um, and so I'd say far more dangerous than the nuclear issue, which, which we're still a few years in some ways from, is um, the question of Iran of, of, of Iran and Hezbollah increasing the number of these missiles. Um, and it may come to a situation where Israel feels it needs to act preemptively. It needs to unilaterally act in order to... Um, try and alleviate this threat before it becomes actualized. But um, Hezbollah have got very serious firepower. Uh, they've got more firepower than some of the some of the armies in NATO. Um, so I think Israelis who want to make a point often talk about how, you know, we've deterred Hezbollah, but actually, yeah, we've deterred Hezbollah and Hezbollah have also deterred Israel. There's this mutual deterrence because the damage that 
each side can do on the other is so great that no one really wants escalation. Um, but if Hezbollah continue to increase the number of, of, of rockets they've got, precision-guided rockets, then this is a real serious threat that's hanging over Israel. Um, and again, it's difficult to know exactly how to how to resolve. So that's absolutely, the Lebanese arena is absolutely uh, an area to look out for uh, in 5782. Um and the instability within Lebanon itself, even putting aside Hezbollah, I think makes it even, even, even worse from an Israeli. Is the collapse is the collapse of Lebanon inevitable? What like what would have to have to happen for the for the country to maintain like just you know some stability, or is it inevitable that it's going to collapse? I don't really know what collapse looks like practically. Um, there isn't really a functioning government. It looks a lot um, like now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess you know, could it get worse? What does worse look like? Could there be fighting in could the streets? Be, could it get better? Also, could it get better? I mean, I think that. So, like, I is think, there a way that it could get better? Is my question. So, I think you know, ideally, the international community—I don't really know what that means anymore. Um, could I don't know? Could imagine put together some sort of huge economic package, but who's going to do that? The, the Americans mm-hmm. aren't going to do that. Are the, are the French going to do that? The French aren't going to do that either. Um, and I think there's a perception even within Lebanon that, that this doesn't help the state. It just it goes to the politicians. You've got this professional class of politicians who have who have been there for the last generation, who who, who, who the people doesn't people don't want anymore. Um, so. Could it get worse? Almost certainly. How could it get better? Uh, difficult to know. Um, I get, but you know, we talk about who could get involved. Well, may, maybe the Iranians could could put more and more money in, and maybe they could stabilize it, and then maybe they can actually even strengthen their hold on the country. But um, that just increases but, the odds of civil war because there are in, there are right. Lebanese who hate the Iranian in theory, but I, and so the but, Saudis end up playing a little bit here and there, digging into Lebanon, and that ends up blowing up. Every every it's like pickup sticks. Everything you move to get it out dislodges a hundred other things. Lebanon's such a mess. Yeah, so I so I think we should we should zoom out a bit and just say that you know Lebanon is made up of three kind of different uh, groups. You've 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 got Christians, you've got Sunni Muslims, and you've got Shia Muslims, um, which breaks into dozens of tribes. A, right, you've got other. Those are kind of I'd say you've you've got Palestinian refugees there. You've got Druze there as well. But the way that the country is is divided up is in some ways each of these. Three groups has has a third of the power. So one chooses the president, one one is prime minister, and one is head of parliament. But the demographics have changed so much that, that doesn't really reflect what the situation is on the ground anymore. But no one really wants to kind of reopen this agreement from I think from I think 1980 that that brought the civil war to an end. Um, so I think there's still such terrible memories of the civil war that no one really wants to go back there. Um, but things can can get out of hand very very quickly there, um, and and Israel sits on the southern border, and not difficult to imagine how how that instability could could kind of trickle over, even either in the form of rockets or in in the form of I don't know thousands of people or Hezbollah strengthening or Iran getting involved. In all sorts of scenarios that are not terrible for Lebanon and also from a more parochial perspective, not not good for Israel either. Mm-hmm. So I think we actually have to wrap up, but in, in four and five, 
is paying attention to sort of the Syrian part of the border, the Hamas part of the border would be four, and five would be, which, and you also were talking about in Syria, watching to see if the American forces stay there. Yeah, so I think there's 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 a to zoom zoom out. There's there's an overview of, of overview question of what is the future of America, the American role in the Middle East. There's no question that America is let's call it pivoting uh, or disengaging. It began under Obama. It continued uh, under Trump. It's continuing over. But you know these are three very very different. Um, maybe even uh, Bush after Iraq. These are three or four very different administrations. They're all doing similar things. Um, but there are American troops, who, not many, who are in who are in Syria, um, who are, uh, I'd argue, pro- protecting protecting uh, Kurdish regions, who are in some ways blocking Iran from continuing um, uh, their, their strengthening in the country. And so, over the question is, you know, does the withdrawal from Afghanistan does that make? Um, Syria, does that make the U.S. more likely to withdraw its troops or more likely to maintain? Really not many. I think maybe 600 troops in Syria. Um, so that is absolutely something to, to look out for going forward. What is America's kind of short-term plan for its presence in the Middle East? Uh, and what does that mean for all of the players, Israel, Iran, the Saudis, the, the Emiratis, etc.? Um, Israel and its allies does not want the U.S., um, to continue to, to continue to leave the Middle East, um, but the the mood in Washington and within America is is going in a different place. It'll be interesting to see where that goes as well. Which is why number five is is the Abraham Accords and increased Israeli involvement in the whatever you want to call it the the Sunni. What do we call them? The 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 yeah, the, 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 the Gulf well, we states. We call them moderate. Are more, I'm not sure if they're moderate either, but but the Israeli Sunni. The global the the more, alliance that's, that's aimed at, at kind of blocking yeah. Iran and which is which is um, shares the worry about uh, deeper American withdrawal from the region. So mm-hmm. I think we we could probably guess that there will be uh, closer ties between Israel and the Emiratis and the Moroccans and the Bahrainis. I personally am not convinced that there'll be some sort of breakthrough with Saudi Arabia. Um, unless there's major progress on the Palestinian issue or unless the Saudis really need some sort of added support amongst the Democrats in Washington, which is a possibility, and see that kind of allying with Israel is, is the way to do that. Um, I think we can assume that things will continue to tick over. Um, but again, the Palestinian issue uh, is not going away. Uh, very easy to imagine all sorts of crises during the year, uh, which, just to go back to point number one, would also put pressure on on, on the government, on the composition of the government. Um, and so there's, there's looking forward, there's a lot of unknowns, but I think the, the Israeli-Emirati uh, alliance will, will only become stronger uh, in the current year, in the, in the coming year. All right. And, and, and anything else positive? And if we're wrong, then, <laughs> you know. I mean, uh, at, at some point, there's a Gal Gadot Cleopatra movie coming. Is that this year? Anything for Israel watchers to... Look forward that to that. Was not on my list, Mike. Um, not on your list. I did true. become aware of it because because people on Twitter were very upset that they cast a, a so-called white, you know, all Jews are white, obviously. So they right, cast right. a white Jew as an Egyptian. Right. They cast. Uh, a, I know that was a big ca- that was a big issue on Twitter, but yeah, I don't know when it's coming ca- out. Well, it's appropriation to cast a Middle East person as a Middle East person of mixed Terrible. Greek and Egyptian. Disgusting. Disgusting. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. All right. Well, look, uh, it's definitely, it's definitely always interesting. And, uh, it's always, it's, it's worth building the habits of following the news because not only does it give you insight and understanding into what's going on, but it makes the connection feel deeper. It makes you feel involved. It makes you feel part of it. So this is just obviously a heads up. Kalev's giving us a very helpful five topics to watch for. But in general, whether it's through uh, uh, news agencies, and, and, and again, for Israeli news, I would say look at Israeli journalism. You're not going to get as much quality reporting on Israel from outside of Israel. Um, and of course, through our Massa program, you have uh, Matt Lippman makes those twice a week weekly updates and you have the weekly podcast we intend to keep going in 5782 to give you insight behind the headlines. So thanks for the perspective, Kalev. I think it's very helpful because sometimes you do get caught up in the day-to-day and you lose track of what the big things are going on. And I do think there's a difference between what we are paying attention to and, as you kept pointing out, what we should be paying attention to. So I think that was, uh, that was very helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. Sure. And thank you, Liel. Yeah, of course. Thank you. It's always nice to podcast again. Woohoo. A little post-Rosh Hashanah podcasting action. Yeah. Back in the game. Yeah. Although downloads do drop during the holidays, but because people are busy. (laughs) Well, they're not going to want to miss this one. That's true. They shouldn't. And pass it along. All Gal Gadot fans should be listening to this podcast. <laughs> but that's we're thinking of changing this. <laughs> that's why you threw it in for the, for the SEO. All Gal Gadot right. news, yeah, yeah. Well, she had a kid. All right, thank you so much, guys. You don't have to Great. log off Thanks, soon, guys. but it's the end of the episode, so I'm turning off the recording. Bye bye. Masa Israel Journey is dedicated to shaping a promising future for the young Jewish individual, the global Jewish community, and the connection to the state of Israel. Masa offers life-transforming, long-term opportunities in Israel that allows fellows to create their own future. Check out MasaIsrael.org for more info.